Have you noticed just this major cultural obsession and even professional preoccupation with the topic of leadership? We we all want good leaders, right? And everyone wants to become a better leader. I mean, you go to any library in the country, it doesn't matter if it's a Christian library or bookstore or anything, and there are just volumes and volumes and volumes on the topic of leadership. And it's because there's always this leadership deficit, it seems like. It's so easy to be frustrated with poor leadership, and you see the effects of it. And so we want good leaders, we want healthy leaders, we want strong leaders. And you know this leadership problem? Well, it's not new with us. It's, it's been around for about as long as you can imagine. Uh, t- uh, the church leader Jerome, the ancient church leader Jerome, he wrote a letter that was dated in 394 AD, and he said this, Many build churches nowadays. Their walls and pillars of glowing marble, their ceilings glittering with gold, and their altars studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers in the church, no heed is given. You see, this leadership problem, it's not new. And so, as we continue through the book of Titus, as Paul is writing to Titus, if you remember last week in his introductory portions of the letter, as he's just kind of introducing himself, he's laying out his passions and what he wants Titus to be passionate about as well. And so, hey, you know what he's going to write about. He's, He's passionate about the church. He's passionate about the church knowing the truth. He's passionate that truth would then promote godliness. He's passionate about the presence of God. And then he's passionate about good, sound preaching to instruct and to encourage the people of God. And so after Paul gets through this introductory portion of the letter, then he jumps right into the meat of it. And if you were to study Paul's letters, uh, you'd understand that many times when Paul writes that he often gives us like right theology right up front. And he says, okay, here's how you ought to think. And after he gives you that right theology, then he shifts into right living. Okay, now that you know how to think right, Here's now how you ought to live. But with Titus, it's different. With Titus, he doesn't really do so much right theology. He just jumps right in to the practical implications of it all. And so, here, so the book of Titus is really just practical theology lived out. Here's how it gets displayed. And so Paul, he has this passion for the church on this island of Crete, and, and for all churches everywhere, really. He's telling Titus, hey, here's where you start. And where he tells him to start is with leadership. And he's telling Titus, you got to choose good, godly leaders. And it's interesting because when Paul tells Titus what to look for in picking good, godly leaders, it's not often where we would look. Let's check it out together. It's Titus 1, 5 through 16. Titus 1, 5 through 16. Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might... Put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but he must be hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting 
whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul begins the body of his letter, and he says, Hey, Titus, here's why I left you on Crete. Here's the work that you're supposed to do, because I left it unfinished. See, Paul, as he's doing his missionary journeys, on his last missionary journey, after he was freed from prison, he went to Crete. And his model of ministry, as he's making disciples and planting churches, is always to put an elder team in place, a leadership team in place, to... Uh, govern the church. And so here in Crete, he's saying, hey, Titus, here, here's why I love you. You got to finish the job that I was unable to finish when I was there. And where it starts is appointing godly elders to lead the church. You know, it's interesting, that term elder, anytime it's ever used in the New Testament, it's always plural. Okay, the only time it's ever used singular is if it's talking about a particular elder. Okay, if, if Paul's referring to himself as an elder or others in this is where Peter is referred to as an elder. But any other time, it's always plural. Why? Because the leadership of the church, the authority of the church, the privilege of stewarding the church is never given to just one man. That one man is now just in charge. No, it's not that I'm just now in charge. That would, that would never be right in a healthy church. In a healthy church, it's always a leadership team. Or it's the coming together of, of godly men who share in the responsibility and the privilege and the authority of leading the church well. And so he's telling Titus, you got to find godly men. It's not just up to you, Titus. You, you don't just get to do this by yourself and now, hey, you're in charge. You're the, you're the big man on the island. You run with it. No, no, you put together a team of godly leaders where you come together and in, 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 in unity. You lead because that's the sign of a healthy and vibrant church. And so Paul knows that this is a big deal. And so he's emphasizing this. And it is a big deal to lead the church. Because when you think about what that means, to lead the church, that, that means that you are leading the bride of Christ as she is on her way to the wedding feast. That, that means that God has given you stewardship over the children of God. It's almost like an adoptive parent in a sense. Like I'm, I'm leading God's children to live and look like God. And so this is a big deal. And Paul, understanding how big of a deal this is, he says, Titus, here's what you got to look for. Here's the qualities. Here's, here's, here's the characteristics of what a godly leader looks like. And it's interesting because, the, you know, in our culture, when we look for strong leaders, we, we look at the resume, right? You know, what, what have you done? What experiences do you have? Let me see your appearance. You had this charisma and this charm. You look like someone I'd want to follow. That's all fine. But when you read Paul's characteristics and his qualifications, they look much different than what the world actually often looks to for leadership. And so I want to go through these with you um, rather quickly. But he says, first off, that the leader 
must be above reproach. And really, right there, that's like a showstopper for me. And I don't need to read any further. It's like I'm disqualified already. Above reproach, well, there's, there's areas in my life, or there's times in my life when I'm not, right? Because I sin, and that sin is never above reproach. But the issue that Paul is getting at here is not perfection, but a pattern. Right? It's the pattern of your life above reproach. It's not that you're always perfect. An elder, like anybody, sins. But the point that Paul is making is that the elder, while not yet having achieved godly perfection, is committed to demonstrating a godly pattern of living. That an elder can't claim flawless perfection, but he better model godly progression. And so this is what he's getting at. And then he moves on. He says, elders are also to be the husband of one wife. Now, this doesn't mean that a single man or a widow cannot be widower, cannot be an elder. Uh, because if that were the case, Paul himself was an elder and he was unmarried. That would mean he was disqualifying himself. It would also mean that Jesus could not be an elder. And if the qualification for leadership ever excludes Jesus, you know maybe your theology is a little off. And so elders are to be the husband of one wife. But what this means is, he must be a one-woman man. That if you're married, you got one, you're a one-woman man. The truth is, many people in the first century Roman world and in our day are not one-woman men. Uh, in fact, as I was just reading about the Roman world and how it worked back then, many men, it was, it was the common practice of the day for men to have wives, primarily for inheritance reasons and for also having children. But then it was an open uh, acknowledgement that these men also had mistresses and were involved with shrine prostitutes. Just, this was just the norm of the day. And so by saying that you're a one-woman man, you're already like disqualifying a whole bunch of people because most men on the island, they, they can't meet this. Most men couldn't meet this in the Roman world. Uh, it, there, there was a, a, rec, a record also of divorce in those times. Divorce was rampant in the Roman world. There was one man, you look back at his, his record, and it was said that he was divorced 27 times. Women uh, were said to kind of date the years by the names of their husbands and that they wore out their bridal veils from having to go to so many weddings. So Paul here, he's, he's setting a high bar. Hey, no, you have one woman. That's it. And you love her faithfully as Christ loved the church. And so that means you love her in her sufferings. You love her in her shortcomings. You're longing for her godly perfection and for her future glory. And so you're, 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 you're bathing her in the word. You're, you're loving her well. That you love her not so much as a saint, though she is in Christ, but as a sinner, because that's how Christ demonstrated his love toward us. So you're sympathizing with her weaknesses. And this is all tied up with that. That this is how you love. And, and, and so it's quite a high bar. And then it kind of makes natural sense that Paul moves from uh, how you love your wife and the qualifications related to having a wife to the kids. And this one's a little bit difficult. In the ESV, the translation goes like this. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. If you're reading from the ESV, right after that word believers, there's a little footnote, and it'll say, or faithful. 
The word that's being translated from the Greek is this word pista, comes from pistis, means uh, faith, faithful. It can be translated actively or passively. And in the active, you're translated actively, that it means they are believers. Children are believers. If you translate it passively, it means that the children are faithful, and it would be understood to be faithful to the instruction of the father, like your father, earthly father. And so the question is, well, well, how does Paul mean it here in this section? And one of the things that complicates it is Paul, in his letters, he uses this term both ways. He uses it passively sometimes, and he uses it actively sometimes. And so we've got to look at the context, and I think the context helps us here, because he says that his children are believers or are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, I think that if he's adding this qualifier and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, that he would have no reason to say that if he was saying you are believers. Well, then naturally this wouldn't be true of you. But if you're saying that the children are faithful, then I think he's defining what faithful submission looks like. That that if you faithfully follow the instruction of your father, then you're not going to do things that bring shame upon the family. That you're not going to be involved in activities that they're just so totally immoral. And that when, the father, when your father gives you instruction, that the children, they respond appropriately. They're not just rebellious and insubordinate. As you go through the qualifications of, of elder, they all reflect the character of the elder. And so the salvation of the elder's children, well, that seems beyond his reach a little bit. Yes, every... Every elder, every Christian leader, every parent, for that matter, should long for the salvation of their kids, should actively be involved in discipling their kids. But that is still up to the sovereign grace of God. It's, it's beyond the elder's ability. And so, to me, it makes most sense that what Paul is saying here is that your children, the elder's children, should be faithful to the instruction, to, to the leadership of the father. And by the way, that would correspond best to what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he wrote to Timothy about qualifications for leadership, and he said that the elder must manage his household well, keeping his children under control. And so this idea seems to correspond best. So I think the ESV missed it a little bit when they translated our believers, but better said our faithful. Paul then, he moves in quick succession to list some other qualifications. And he does this first by saying, hey, here's what cannot be true of the elder. And then here's what should be true. So here are the negative uh, qualifications that if you have those, well, then you're disqualified. And here are the positive qualifications that you have to have those. This has to be true of you. And so we're going to look at each one uh, here rather quickly. He says that they can't be blinded by arrogance. Why? Because he's a steward. He's a steward. And a steward... He's not looking after his own will. He's not looking after his, his self and trying to promote himself. He's not self-promoting. But he's stewarding the will of the Father. The, the, the responsibilities of the Father are now given to his care. And so the church is not his. This is not, it's not like my church in the sense that I own it or, or, or I'm the chief shepherd of it. No, that's Jesus' responsibility. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Like, we're under shepherds, the leadership team. We're, we're under shepherds who come along and we take this responsibility and this privilege uh, humbly, seriously. Uh, and so uh, a steward understands that it's not yours. 
It belongs to someone else. This would be like if you hire a babysitter, okay? You say, okay, hey, I want you to just look after the kids while we're out on a date. And then you come back home at the end of the date. You come home, and you find that the babysitter is wearing your clothes. And she's taken the liberty to paint your living room like lime green. And she's gotten rid of your dog. You know, at that, you, you say, well, what have you done? This is not your house. This is not, you don't just get to, like, paint the room whatever color you want. You can't just get rid of our dog. Why? Because it's not yours. I put you in charge over what's mine for a little while, but it's not yours. This is, you don't just get to lead and do according to your will. And this is the same thing that's true in the church. It's not mine. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the leaderships. We, we just get to be in charge for a little while, steward for a little while. They'll be, hopefully, we ran a healthy, vibrant church. There'll be pastors long after me who, who steward with a godly leadership team. Well, what's happening here? He moves on. He says, uh, the elder cannot be quick-tempered or controlled by anger. And this is someone who has a propensity toward anger. Um, and this is important because in ministry, there's many opportunities to get frustrated. There's many opportunities to get angry. Things aren't going to go right. Things are going to be hard. Things are going to be tough at times. And so if you have that inclination toward anger, it's, it's going to be bad. I can tell you a story. There's a, um, an elder that I, that I know of well, and he was um, a part of a leadership team as the church was going through this transition process of looking for a new uh, pastor. And as they're going through this process, people had all these different ideas and everything, and uh, they didn't like some of the, the way the transition was being handled. And one of the people in the church came up to him and was kind of yelling at him and then just spit right in his face. And this guy, he took out a handkerchief. He, he wiped it off. He kind of cooled down. He smiled at him. And he said, I hope that was helpful for you. I'll be praying for you. But he, he dialed down the heat of the moment. It would have been so easy to be angry. I mean, you just get spit in the face. I mean, how, how do most people react to respond to that? But the qualification of the elder says, no, you, you don't have this propensity towards anger. It's also the elder should not be a drunkard, should not be influenced by alcohol. And, and this phrase actually carries with it this word picture of someone who they have wine as their companion. That everywhere you go, they just got the bottle with them. And you, well, you know, this is, this is what we know about them. Next, the elder should not be recognized as abusive. It's interesting, in the early church, they had to put into the canon that any bishop who struck, who hit a sinning believer would have to be dismissed. But evidently, people in the early church, they would sin, and then bishops would come along and smack them. And they had to say, no, it doesn't work like that. If you do that, you're out. Uh, but the word here simply does not refer to an action. It also rever refers to speech. So the elder cannot be seen as either physically or verbally abusive to people. Elders are not people who tear other people down. Elders are not people who respond to evil words just with evil right back at them. They don't, they don't uh, repay insult with insult. These are people who are kind. The elder also cannot be driven by affluence. Money cannot be the driving ambition of the elder. 
Elders can't be people who just kind of cater, cater to the wealthy. These, these people cannot be bought. These people cannot be ones who make decisions primarily based on money rather than ministry. And so just to summarize these negative characteristics that Paul talks about, an elder cannot be blinded by arrogance. He cannot be controlled by anger. He cannot be influenced by alcohol. He cannot be recognized as abusive, either physically or verbally. And he cannot be driven by affluence. And so now what should an elder be? What are are the positive qualifications? And the first, he should be hospitable. Now, sometimes we think of hospitality as just, yeah, we open up our home, we have friends over, and this is great. Uh, But that's more fellowship, really, when you get to it, as long as there's there's an element of encouraging one another through God's truth. This, this biblical word hospitality, it actually refers to loving strangers and almost inviting strangers into your home. That's why we talk here often about making your home a ministry center, that we, we want our home to be lights in our, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, that people know there's something different about us based on the way that we love people. And so th- this is true of the elder, that those people who you just kind of pass by, either in your neighborhood or on the street, and nobody would think twice, really, if you didn't think twice about them. Well, the characteristic of the elder is, no, he does care, that he does show kindness to people in small ways or in big ways with with strangers that he meets throughout the day. He should also love what is good. You know, the world loves bad stuff. I mean, you, you just, you turn on the TV, you go anywhere, the internet, And you see the world loves bad stuff. It's preoccupied with evil. And there's there's this propensity even to like, oh man, there's some dirt over there. Well, can you you give me the scoop? You want to give me the lowdown? I want to know all all the gory details. Yeah, just uh, let let me hear it. And there's this propensity towards that. And Paul's saying to Titus, no, elders can't be like that. They they can't want to know all the dirt. They don't don't love all all the... all the evil. Paul, he wrote to Timothy, and he said in the last days that society, that people are going to become haters of good. That they'll actually hate good, and at the same time, they will love evil. And so Paul says, you've got to find men who, they love what's good. They're devoted to things that do not violate the intrinsic character of God. That they love things that do not violate who God is, and, and how he loves. And so it's a question that the elder must ask, but all of us must ask, as a, as a Christian, am I influenced by and am I, am I surrounding myself with things that are evil according to the standards of God? Do I fill my mind with this? Or do I love that which is good and pleasing to God? Paul moves on. He says the elder must be self-controlled. It simply means to have common sense or to have this wise mindset that Christian leaders should be men who, uh, who love God with all their hearts, but at the same time with all their minds. And then he goes on. He should be holy or just. This refers to the elder's right relationship with people, that you should treat people fairly, you should treat people rightly. You should actually live towards people and treat people the way that you tell others to live towards people and treat people. And then he says, lastly, you should be devout. And this refers to the elder's relationship with God. That your life is to reflect the character of Christ. 
And so in order to reflect the character of Christ, you've got to walk faithfully, devoutly with Christ. Now, each one of these characteristics could be like a point, right? And here's point, and, and, and they all are. If you violate any one of them, you're, you're disqualified. But to kind of sum it all up, we are to choose leaders who model a godly example. We choose leaders who model a godly example because these standards, these qualifications, yes, they're for elders, but they're really for all of us. It's not like God says, you know what? Here's the bar I want for elders, but for any of you other Christians, you know, uh, your bar is a little lower. You don't, you don't need to measure up. No, that's, that's not how he works. In fact, our standard is never even an elder or a Christian leader. Our standard is always Christ, that we be conformed to the image of Christ, that every Christian, every believer, what we want, though, are leaders who maybe are just a little further down the road, a little more mature in their relationship with Jesus, who've been conformed a little more to the image of Christ so that they can help us, they can model for us what it looks like to live and love the way Jesus does. But not only should leaders model a godly example, the leaders got to move from the private exercise of these characteristics to a public exposition. And so Paul, he makes this shift in verse 9. And you can see he moves from who an elder is to really what an elder does. And Paul says he's got to hold firm to the word because he recognizes that the word is trustworthy. He's got to revere the word. He's got to love the word. He's got to study the word. He's got to obey the word. He's got to teach the word. Because he recognizes this is the trustworthy word of God. The leader preaches and teaches the word of God. This is the message. You don't have another message. This is it. Nothing else is adequate. And he's fully convinced that it is the word of God that can transform the heart, the soul, the character of anybody. And so it's the word that is preached. It's the word that is clung to. He's committed to teaching the word because he understands that the word of God reveals the character of God. It reveals the will and the purposes of God. It reveals the promises of God. It reveals the, the plan of redemption by God. It reveals the dangers of the enemies of God. And so it's always the word that is, that is the foundation for healthy ministry. A firm grip on the word of God by the leadership enables the church to get their arms around the word. And once you have your arms around the word, then you are equipped from, for the work. See, if the word slips, the work slips. Paul, he said it this way, that it is the word of God that, that equips the believer for every good work. That if you do not have leaders who will faithfully encourage and teach God's word to you in a way that you can understand it and make sense of it in its context, it's not just jumping all over the place from here to here to here to here where it's just a jumbled mess. But when we go through faithfully expounding the scripture, I understand, then I can get my arms around the work that God has made me to do. And so this is an important characteristic qualification for the elder. But Paul tells Titus that there's two ways in which the word is to be used. He says, one, it should be used in an encouraging way, in a building up kind of a way. And the other, it should be used in a correcting or protecting kind of a way. So it should be used to teach sound doctrine, to encourage people in the truth of who God is, who we are, how we're to live as a result. And it should also be used to confront any false teaching or wrong living in the church. So Paul, he's telling Titus, you go out there and you find godly men who will cling to the word 
who will understand it well. And by understanding, that means also living. And then they will teach it. They will encourage people with it. And they will use it to build them up and equip them for the works of ministry. And at the same time, you find men who are not just simply going to melt away when there's some wrong thinking that's going on or there's some wrong living, just kind of turn a blind eye. Well, you know, I don't want to have an argument. There's just men who are passive and who walk away from it. Just know you find godly leaders who will stand up and take them back to the word of God and say, no, this is how you ought to think. Therefore, this is how you ought to live and challenge it. And so this is how the word must be used by the leadership to encourage and both to correct and protect. So bottom line, you choose leaders who deeply understand God's truth. Now, why is all this important? Why do we have to have leaders like this? Because the church is in constant danger, Paul writes, of being misled, of being abused, of being fleeced. There's a whole lot of carn artists out there who use the guise of religion to pump up their own popularity, to gain some type of authority over people, or to become wealthy through religion. And it's tragic. And Paul says, you've got to stand up to all that. This is why godly leaders are so important. Because there's going to be some who kind of worm their way in, and they're going to use this guise of religion to do all kinds of things. And these are, he says, rebellious men. Well, they might be in the church, and they might be claiming to be Christian, but really, they're accountable to no one, right? I mean, you look at it, they're not really accountable to anybody. If someone were to go and correct them on a certain lifestyle or some element of wrong living, that they wouldn't change or adjust or anything, they just get defensive. They turn the finger back on you. It, this, this happens. Just, no, these are unaccountable. They're living unaccountable to the body. They're rebellious. They are not fit for leadership. He goes on. He says they're empty talkers. Oh, they use impressive language. It's real flowery. It sounds really good. But when you really drill down into it, there's, there's no solid message behind it. There's no sound biblical truth to what they're saying. Oh, they make great speeches, but it really amounts to so little. Might, make, might tickle your ears. Might, might make you feel better in the moment. But there's no real truth to what they're saying. You know, they're slick, they're smooth, they're persuasive, they're even likable, but their teaching amounts to nothing. And you know how it works, right? You've, you've seen these Christian celebrities that we have, and they might be interviewed on a topic such as morality. They could, they could be interviewed on a topic about God's judgment or some aspect of his character. And when you see them, they, the way they finesse their answers, are, it's kind of impressive a little bit, but you understand that they're just spineless jellyfish. They don't stand on anything. And so you know how their answers go, right? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. You know, that's, that's kind of, uh, I'll just leave that one up to God. You know, I don't know that I can really say, but God has the answers for that. These, these are leaders in the church. These are people who are supposed to take you back to God's word and say, this is what God says about this. This is how we stand on his word. This is the foundation that we stand. They say, well, you know, I don't know. You just trust God. And Paul says, no, that is empty. That they should not be leaders. They're empty talkers. Why? Because they're in it for themselves. 
They don't want to say anything that could possibly offend anybody else. They said, well, if this risks offending, well, (laughs) I'm not going to say it. They're self-promoting. And Paul says the reason why this is so dangerous is because this garbage divides families. It divides families. How does it divide families? Because there's some who listen to it. You say, you know what? That kind of makes me feel a little better. I kind of like what he's saying. You know, I, I feel pretty good about that. The purpose of the scripture is not to make us feel good, but it's to conform us to the image of Christ. And so we need leaders who will help do that, who will take us back continually to the word of God, because once we understand who we are and how we live and how we're to relate to God, well, then there's that abundant life. When it's simply truth found from within or the spineless stuff that might sound fine, but really amounts to nothing. It's momentary satisfaction at best. And so Paul says, hey, you, you, gotta, you gotta make them be quiet. You can't just allow this type of stuff coming from your leadership. And where are most of these people coming from? Paul says it's not from the outside. It's not like someone just walks in to your church gathering and then you say, you know what, let's have him lead. He seems good. No, that, that's not the danger. Usually when someone comes in from the outside, it's easily recognizable. He said where most of these people come from is from inside the church. People claiming to have a relationship with Christ. In Paul's day, it was common, he refers to the circumcision party. These were Judaizers, these were people who were previously Jewish, and now they're claiming to be Christians and have this relationship with Jesus. And so what they're saying to all the Gentiles uh, is, hey, if you really want to be saved, well, then you got to go back to the Mosaic law. You got to bow to the rabbinical teaching. You got to do everything that we're telling you to do in addition to whatever Jesus is saying. So what they're essentially saying is that, hey, the work of Christ is not sufficient for salvation. And the life of Christ is not the ultimate standard of life. In other words, what they're saying is Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. Jesus and this. And so Paul tells Titus very strongly, you find men, you find leaders, you find elders who will silence those people. Literally, that word silence means to put a muzzle on them so they cannot talk. You do not let them speak because what they're saying is dangerous. They're detestable. They're unfit for leadership. He's very strong in his critique because he knows how dangerous it is. He knows that this garbage sometimes sounds really good and people will go to it and they'll gravitate towards it. He says, this cannot happen in the church. So you choose leaders who will protect the church's theology, right theology. Paul's very firm on the type of men who should be chosen as elders, as leaders in the church. And I think one of the reasons is because he knows the propensity of people is to look towards things and the qualifications that don't really impress God too much. We, we tend to look at appearances. We tend to look for charisma and charm and past experience on resumes. And, and some of that stuff can be helpful. But Paul is saying to Titus, no, here's the qualifications that you really need. Kind of reminds me, you remember the story of Samuel? 
when God tells Samuel, hey, I want you to go see Jesse's sons because uh, we got to pick the next king of Israel. We got to pick the replacement for King Saul. And so you remember, Samuel, he goes and he sees Jesse's sons and he says, hey, bring your sons out. Let me see him. And the first one comes out and it's Eliab. And this guy comes out and he is strong and he's handsome. And Samuel looks at him and he's saying, man, that's got to be the guy. I mean, anybody would follow that guy. He just looks like a leader. It's got to be the guy. And God tells Samuel, no, no, Samuel, the world looks for the outer appearance. I'm interested in the heart of the man. And so Jesse brings out all his other sons. And God never tells Sam, no, that's the one. No, none of, none of them are it. They all look like they could be. Like, oh, that guy looks like potential. That one, no, no. That one, no. And then Samuel, he turns to Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse doesn't even believe in his last son. He's like, well, you know, there's one more. He's kind of a runt. He's just out in the, in the fields tending sheep. I, it, it most certainly is not him. And then Jesse brings out David who would be the greatest king of Israel. Why? Because man doesn't look, or God doesn't look for the thing man looks for. And what what God is trying to do through us is to choose the type of leaders that he wants. You know, when the people got to choose, they chose Saul. That didn't go so well. We tend to choose a lot of Saul's because we look for appearance. We look for charisma we look for charm. And Paul says, Titus, no, when you find leaders for my church, I want you to find leaders who will model a godly example. I want you to find leaders who have a deep understanding of my truth. And I want you to find leaders who will at all costs protect the theology, the right thinking of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word and how it refines our thinking. It refines us to, to, to think about leadership in a new way, in a way that we ordinarily wouldn't. God, forgive us when we first look to things that you don't look for. When we look towards resumes, appearances, charisma, charm, all these things. God, help us to look simply towards character. Look for the qualifications that you've laid out. And God, these qualifications, while, yes, they're for leaders, they're really for all of us. May we all grow in our relationship with you, that we would look and live like Jesus being conformed into his image. We recognize that we need your help for that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.